This is an ABC podcast. Well, he was the voice who rallied the French as they suffered under German occupation during World War II. He was an unknown junior general at the outbreak of the war who went on to become the most important figure in France's history. My next guest says he's the most written about Frenchman since Napoleon. How did he do it? Through the force of his personality, an incredible willpower that saw him refuse to accept defeat and eventually have France recognised as one of the victorious allies. Charles de Gaulle was a thorn in the side of the British and the Americans, not just during, but after the Great War of World War II. It challenged US hegemony, taking France out of NATO and vetoing Britain's entry into the European Economic Community. The book is called A Certain Idea of France, The Life of Charles de Gaulle, Julian Jackson is Professor of History at Queen Mary University of London and is the author of that new biography of Charles de Gaulle. Professor Jackson, it's a pleasure to have you on the program. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, de Gaulle today is widely admired inside and outside of France. You referenced a 2010 survey in which 44% of the French ranked him as the most important figure in their history, but this was certainly not the case during his lifetime, was it? No, no, he was as much hated as he was loved. There were about 30 assassination attempts. One came very close to success. I think the level of hatred that he attracted from certain people was almost uh, pathological. But that has changed now. It often happens, of course, to people after they die. But if I could just add to all the achievements that you listed in your in excellent introduction, I'll just add one more, which is in some ways possibly the one which helps explain the kind of universal admiration today, was that the um, political system that France has today, the so-called Fifth Republic, mm. which President Macron is at the moment, anyway, it'll probably all go wrong as it always does, but for the moment... <laughs> He's being a very effective president. That system was created by de Gaulle in 1958. France had had republic after republic. It's the fifth because there were four others. Mm. And for 150 years since the revolution, the French could not get any kind of consensus about the political system they should have. And de Gaulle created a system which most French now believe in. And President Macron, if you want to, just to return to him, rather interestingly, uh, he's got an official photograph. You know, all French presidents have themselves photographed officially. And his has him posing in front of a table. And behind him, there's an open copy of a book. And what is that book? That book is Charles de Gaulle's War Memoirs. And I think there's a subliminal or more than subliminal statement in that. You mentioned the Fifth Republic, also the term Gaullist. De Gaulle himself says, quote, everybody is, has been, or will be Gaullist. But from another observer yep. of the 1965 election that says, outside the ultra faithful, everyone has been, is, or will be anti-Gaullist. Yes, exactly. That's to say that Gaullism aspired to be a kind of synthesis of all French traditions. But of course, no one subscribed to all those traditions. So people at different times situated themselves differently. Of course, that's a statement of unbelievable arrogance from the part of de Gaulle. Everybody uh, is, has been or will be Gaullist. But arrogance was certainly one of his features. I think what he meant by that is that some of the things he was trying to do would sooner or later become generally accepted. Let me just take two 
two examples. And I'm not saying these are necessarily good things. The first is when de Gaulle came back to power in 58, one of his absolute priorities was that France would have an independent nuclear deterrent. He believed that to be a great power, you had to be able to defend yourself. And the only way you could do that in the modern world was by an independent nuclear deterrent. Almost no one supported that now. Supported that then, I'm sorry. Now, I don't think there's anyone in France who doesn't support a French independent nuclear deterrent. Another example, the French attempt always to situate themselves slightly at a distance from America, to be a critical friend of America, if you want. I think that's what de Gaulle said he wanted to be. Very good example of that would be the Iraq war, where the then French foreign minister, Dominique de Villepin, who was Chirac's foreign minister, made a big speech at the UN, where basically he said, we're not going into this. And really, that could have been de Gaulle speaking from the grave. Mm-hmm. And during his lifetime, many people were very critical of what they saw as de Gaulle's anti-Americanism, whether it was or not is a different matter. But again, that's sense that France needs to, as it were, distance herself from America, even if she sees her as an ally, is another heritage of de Gaulle. So in that sense, I think, you know, many people were anti-Gaullist. They didn't believe in these things. Most people now do. Let's go back to the 1940s, because this is really where de Gaulle makes his name. You say he entered history as a voice, not a face, through a short BBC broadcast from London, 18th of June, 1940. L'action foudroyante de cette force mécanique a amené l'effondrement du moral, du commandement et du gouvernement. Who was he at this point? He was probably, when he made that speech, sitting in a a little studio, rather like I'm sitting at the BBC in London at the moment, (laughs) staring at a microphone, thinking, as I now speak, my life is going to change forever. Basically, he arrived in London on the 17th of June, and he arrived because the French government, headed by the famous war hero, Marshal Pétain, had decided the war was over, France was defeated, and France must sign an armistice with Germany. De Gaulle, for a lot of reasons, a prescient, In fact, he said this is a world war. The Battle of France is just the first of what will be a world war, which the Americans will enter, which has the British Empire behind us and so on, in which the Germans will ultimately be defeated. And the truth is, though, when he arrives in London, he is nobody. Mm. He is the most junior general in the French army. He'd been a general for about about three or four weeks previously. Uh, He was known, obviously, in the military, but to the French public, he was not known. He'd spent about 10 days in the last government at a very junior post at the Ministry of Defence. So he arrived as an unknown figure. You might say, well, why did Churchill say, "Okay, you can broadcast on the BBC? Churchill said it basically because he happened to have met the goal three times during those last dramatic, terrible days of the fall of France when Churchill would go over to France to try and buck up the morale of the French government and military. And de Gaulle was one of the people who struck him as somebody who actually seemed not to be panicking when everybody else was. If in the end, Churchill said, OK, well, you can broadcast on the BBC, it was because there was nobody else. Tell us more about the content of that BBC broadcast through which de Gaulle first announced himself to history. 
If I can just stress even more the unknownness of de Gaulle. I mean, he was so mm. unknown mm. that once the voice started coming regularly over the airwaves to France and people started listening to this strange voice from London, letters would arrive at the BBC by complicated routes. They didn't know how to spell his name. They didn't know what he looked like. They didn't know whether he was tall. They didn't know whether he was small. They didn't know whether he was fat. They didn't know whether he was thin. We all think we know he's a very caricaturable figure, isn't mm. he? We all Indeed. know this yeah. strange six foot four wasn't he? Figure six foot four, a sort of giant mm. in a period when the French were actually rather short. When he arrived back in liberated France in 1944, uh, he did a short visit to the bits that had been liberated by the Allies. People knew that he was in a jeep with another French general and a small group uh, sort of approached or mobbed the jeep and they all surrounded the other general who was next to him because the other general had five stars on his kepi, which meant he was a senior general to de Gaulle when he had two. And they had no idea what de Gaulle looked like. They thought the five star one must be de Gaulle. In other words, he is just a, a voice, unknown voice. And that is so important to explain the kind of mythological hold he developed over the French in the war. Everybody could, in a way, project their hopes, fears, aspirations onto this voice. And of course, but this is all you... happening at the time of the Nazi expansion throughout Western Europe, right? Absolutely. France is occupied at least until June 1941 or the end of 1941, when the German invasion of the Soviet Union starts to go wrong. The Nazis look, the Germans look as though they are going to be the dominant force. So to go back to your question, mm. what did de Gaulle say in that first speech? And it's very short. It's about four minutes. It was made, as I said, on the 18th of June. But at the time, Almost nobody heard it. The BBC didn't even bother to record it. So we don't actually have a recording. Or if they recorded it, there's a bit of obscurity there. They didn't bother to keep the recording. So we don't actually have de Gaulle's speech spoken by de Gaulle. That doesn't exist. But what he said was really very simple. It was a call to arms, a call to resistance. Basically, the line of the speech is that the flame of French resistance will not be extinguished and must not be extinguished. But that's not the most important thing. The most important thing is that it's an appeal to reason. It explains that this is a military defeat due to the superior tactics um, and armaments of the enemy. It doesn't mean that France is a decadent, destroyed, finished. It has particular military reasons and it is the first battle in what will be a world war. My guest is Professor Julian Jackson. He's the author of A Certain Idea of France, The Life of Charles de Gaulle. Let's go to de Gaulle's upbringing. Tell us about his family life. What kind of family did he come from? He came from a very conservative monarchist. He was born in 1890. He was born into a France that was modernizing. Uh, the year before he was born, the Eiffel Tower had been built, that symbol of industrial modernity, if you want. So he was born into a republican, secular, anti-Catholic French regime. But he was born into a not particularly rich, but perfectly comfortably off very intellectual family of Catholics with a certain regret for the lost monarchy. His father was a teacher in a Jesuit school. So he could not have been a more traditional background. You could say they were a slightly, what you might say, um, on, on, the, on the margins of the modern world. They were kind of almost sort of internal exiles in this modern, republican, secular France. 
So that the goal should emerge as a sort of figure who embodies all the traditions of France is in a sort of way counterintuitive if you look at this rather marginal background that he comes from. And he had a typical, just, though, exemplary military education. I, I understand in your book you say that just two years after he graduates, you've got the First World War breaking out. This is 1914. He experienced a real baptism of fire in the opening days of the conflict. I think he was shot in the leg in Belgium. The reality of war must have had a huge impact on him. Well, the fact that he decided to join the army is absolutely characteristic of young French of his generation. For somebody like him, to serve the army was a way of serving France. And we haven't said this so far in this interview, but I think the one thing that one has to stress about de Gaulle, and it is the title of my book, is the famous phrase he used at the beginning of his war memoirs, all my life I have had a certain idea of France. His relationship to France is something really quite strange. I mean, we're all familiar with the idea of patriotism. That's not a, it's a word we can all use. We're all probably in different kinds of ways patriotic. But de Gaulle's patriotism was, it was half mystical, but but also in a, some sense very what the French would call charnel. He said that he envisaged France as a Madonna in the frescoes, as a princess in the fairy stories. France is his mother. It's almost like the Virgin Mary. So you join the army to serve your country. He's wounded three times and then he's taken a prisoner. He's taken and prisoner actually, by the Germans and I think he's, he's spent taken, something like two years in POW camps, right? Absolutely. Yes, he's taken prisoner at that terrible Battle of Verdun mm-hmm, in 1916. Mm-hmm. He, um, he'd he been wounded three times, not dramatically wounded, but wounded. And uh, then he's taken prisoner and he tries to escape. He's moved from prisoner of war camp to prisoner of war camp. But the problem about escaping is that it's not actually so difficult to escape from a prisoner of war camp. But the difficulty is once you've escaped to actually get to the to the frontier and get to liberty. And because de Gaulle was not exactly someone who passed unnoticed because of his tallness and his weird appearance, he kept being recaptured. So he spent most of the second half of the war in a prisoner of war camp. And you asked, uh, what is the impact uh, mm. of the war on him? Well, I think the impact of that experience is a sense of humiliation and bitterness because he so desperately, desperately wanted to have served from the beginning to the end and to be there at the victory. And he wrote a very poignant letter at the very end of the war to one of his um, commanding officers saying, obviously, like everyone, I'm sharing in the joy of victory over Germany, the hereditary enemy, all those things that people of de Gaulle's generation believed. But it will be for me forever mixed up with a bitterness and a sadness that I was not there to participate in the victory. And I think part of that sense of extraordinary ambition, restless ambition of de Gaulle in the interwar years is to make up for that humiliation and that lost time. This desire to make a mark, it was clearly made difficult by the growing pacifism in both the government and society. You think about the Kellogg-Briand Peace Pact to outlaw war in 1928. So against that backdrop, to what extent did he make his mark? It's obviously difficult for soldiers to make a mark when there isn't a war. And that was the frustrating (laughs) thing for de Gaulle. And the way he made his mark was actually as an intellectual. He was a very cerebral man. Uh, We haven't actually said, as I said at the beginning, he came from a very much uh, an intellectual background and books, books, books were his life in a way that really makes him very odd among contemporary politicians. He was steeped in French 
literature and he was steeped in French history. I suppose in the kind of way that Churchill was steeped in British history, but de Gaulle was a more intellectual and cerebral figure. So he wrote books. He wrote four books in the interwar years. He wrote about leadership. He wrote about the history of the French army. And he wrote a book which is probably the only one that really got much publicity, but even that wasn't a a bestseller. As I repeat, he wasn't known when he arrived in London, which was a plea for the modernization of the French army, that the French army must not try to fight the last war again, must take on board the need for mobility, tanks, modernization, and so on. So that's how he tries to make his mark. And what was he saying about the resurgence of the German threat in the mid to late 1930s? He was, in the interwar years, a, in many ways, traditional French conservative. He changed, I think, in many ways after the war. But Germany was the enemy. Germany was the hereditary enemy. He was not one of those people who believed the Versailles settlement was unfair. He believed, if anything, the Versailles settlement should have been tougher on the Germans. He believed Well, that was a conventional wisdom at the time in a, France, a Totally correct? conventional, mm. particularly among people on, on the right. Because, mm. as you mentioned, Briand is a, a sort of um, centre politician of the centre-left who believes in reconciliation with Germany. Mm. De Gaulle had no truck with that. Germany is resurgent. And it wasn't, by the way, Nazism. The enemy for him was Germany. I mean, he didn't, I'm not saying he liked Nazism, obviously, but that wasn't the point. It was Germany. And what distinguishes him, and this is very important, from other conservatives in the 1930s in France, is he never wavers in that belief. And my point here is this. In the 1930s, France became a very divided society. A lot of people on the right started to fear internal communism. They started to fear revolution. And so many French right-wingers moved to the position that, yes, we don't like Germany traditionally, but Nazi Germany is at least a bulwark against Soviet communism, Bolshevism. De Gaulle never took that view. So when the issue became, should the French sign a pact with the Soviet Union. He wrote an important letter to his mother on this. He said, you asked me what I think about a pact with the Soviet Union. I say it is absolutely necessary. It is necessary for geopolitical reasons. We're indifferent to the kind of regime the Soviet Union is. Germany is the enemy and we must not put ideology over patriotism. Okay, well, let's return to de Gaulle's BBC broadcasts. Now, the second speech was made the day after the French government signed the armistice with the Germans. What did Churchill and the British government make of de Gaulle and his attempt to set up an alternative government from London? I think everybody knows that the relationship between uh, Churchill and de Gaulle after the beginning was not an easy one. De Gaulle was not an easy man. His whole point was Yeah, but I should emphasise that Churchill yes. and the British fully bankrolled and largely and, supported uh, De Gaulle, absolutely. right? Absolutely. Yeah, no, no. He bit the hand, I think I say in the book, he bit the hand that fed him uh, and he bit the hand that fed him to show that France still had teeth. Gratitude was not, not in his repertoire. No, you're absolutely right. Without Churchill, there would have been no De Gaulle. He relied on the BBC, he was bankrolled by them. But there was a, a big difference and the difference was this. The British or Churchill, because it was originally Churchill, their view was it's wonderful. A Frenchman has come over to London. He will rally some other French to join the Allies. Perhaps he'll bring over some bigger figures. In the end, the bigger figures didn't join him. So it was just a goal. The British always were, to some extent, and even more the Americans, assuming that it might be possible to bring the Vichy regime, the 
regime of Marshal Pétain in France over to the Allied camp. That was absolutely Roosevelt's position. So what they didn't want, obviously they were backing de Gaulle, but they were trying to almost have it both ways. And de Gaulle was saying Vichy is illegitimate. It is not the French government. I am France. I mean, he would say I am France. And his point was that a, a, a government that has signed an armistice which allows half its country to be occupied has forfeited its legitimacy. Now, whether or not that's right, that was his position. And the extraordinary battles he has with Churchill and even more with Roosevelt actually stem from the refusal of the British to recognise him as a government. 25th of August 1944, de Gaulle arrives in Paris, which has just been liberated by the Americans from the Germans. How keen was de Gaulle to assert his authority as the President of the Republic at that moment? Well, what de Gaulle wanted to do, and this goes back to the point we just made when he was asserting his own legitimacy as a kind of government in exile. His ambition was that when France was liberated, because he believed from the beginning that France would be, that the war would be won by the Allies, that France must not be in the position of a a country liberated and occupied, but a partner. And it was an extraordinary ambition, if you think, of the state of the humiliated state of France in 1940. But in a sense, he succeeded in that. Uh, Many of the developing resistance rallied to de Gaulle uh, because of that voice coming. They didn't know who de Gaulle was, but there was a resistance moving developing in France and de Gaulle was the name to which they attached themselves. So what's very interesting is that Eisenhower when he is planning what becomes the D-Day operation, is desperate to work with de Gaulle because he sees that what he needs is the as much as possible to uh, work with the French resistance or to get at least some help from the French resistance. And that's got to be done via de Gaulle. And so he's very frustrated by Roosevelt's suspicion of de Gaulle, Eisenhower, for pragmatic reasons. So when de Gaulle gets back to Paris, he needs and wants to to be recognised as head of a provisional government for two reasons. One, to prevent anarchy in France. After all, France is in a state of all over France. There are these little resistance committees developing. There's an extraordinary powerful communist party. There is a kind of latent civil war. There isn't a civil war, but there is a, a lot of violence. He wants to restore order. And why does he want that? Because he is desperate that when the Allies start to discuss what the world is going to be like after the war, France can be in a position to have a voice in that debate. And I think you said at the beginning of your your first introduction, thanks partly to de Gaulle, in 1945, when the United Nations is set up, the French get a permanent seat on the Security Council and they get, astonishingly, a zone of occupation in Germany. Now, their contribution to the war had been relatively limited, though it was um, not insignificant between 44 and 45. But that's all thanks to de Gaulle's success in saying there is a government. You don't need to occupy France. There doesn't need to be a military occupation. I have set up a government which can talk he would have said as an equal, obviously. That's certainly not what uh, Churchill and Roosevelt thought, but at least as a partner with the Allies. Mm -hmm. And that was the point. You're on RN. If you just tuned in, this is Tom Switzer from Between the Lines. And my guest is Professor Julian Jackson, author of 
the widely acclaimed A Certain Idea of France, The Life of Charles de Gaulle. Let's get to the post-war Europe because de Gaulle is very influential here. And I was struck by something that de Gaulle tells the newly elected Richard Nixon in 1969, quote, in London, Brussels, Bonn, Berlin and Rome, you will have seen that there is no Europe. Perhaps it will exist one day, but it does not exist today. Uh, Was de Gaulle in favour of or against um, European integration at this point? (laughs) Well, oh dear, that's the million-dollar question. You've uh, <laughs> and very um, relevant today, wish, obviously. Yes, very relevant today, and 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 I think part of the reason why my book seems to have attracted um, what's given it, I suppose, um, a kind of extra contemporary resonance in in England today is that we're going through, as I'm sure you know, uh, a, a kind of little civil war of our own about Brexit. A lot of people have brought out the famous two speeches that De Gaulle made in 1963 and 1967, in which he vetoed British entry to Europe and a lot of the things he said about what he thought would happen if Britain became part of Europe uh, seemed to be in many ways remarkably prescient. But your question is, what was his view of Europe? And it is actually a very complicated thing. And I just want to sort of preface this by saying that the more I worked on de Gaulle in my book, the more I found it hard to pin de Gaulle down. He's at one level a very simple man. You know, he's a man who says what he thinks. He's famous in a sense for a kind of sort of intransigence brutality. He has a view of the world and he expresses it with extraordinary lucidity. But he's also unbelievably slippery. He's terribly difficult to pin down. When I was writing the book, people would say to me, oh God, it must be awful writing a book about a man who has such absurd ideas of the role that France could play in the world. And I would say, well, actually, no. Everything that you think is absurd about de Gaulle, de Gaulle had already said it himself. He's always one step ahead of you. He's very cunning. He's he's very pragmatic as the well as well as being almost slightly, slightly mystical in his view of France. So when we try to answer the question, what did he think about Europe? I think the simple answer is this. He had a deep suspicion of supranational institutions. He was ultimately a conservative French nationalist. We, that is the and, bottom And a line. realist in foreign policy and terms. Realist. Yes, and a realist. Uh, so he did not believe, or he was very suspicious of supranationalism. But when he came back to power in 1958, the move to the, the Treaty of Rome that sets up what is the now called the European Community had been signed. So That's France right, was on the yeah. track. 57, exactly, yes. So France is on that track already. And what's interesting about de Gaulle is although he condemned He'd uh, denounced it in opposition when he was trying to get back to power in the 1950s. He accepted it once it was there. There's this extraordinary pragmatism about de Gaulle. It's there. Let's make the best of it. So let's try and make these institutions work for us. Let's turn the common agricultural policy into something that works for France and so on. So there's a, a pragmatism. But he instinctively didn't like supranational institutions. And I think actually there was a kind of prescience there. As I'm sure you know, it's not just Britain and Brexit. There is definitely some crisis going on in Europe today. Mm. The elections in Italy are, are great. Even in France, there's quite strong anti Nations reasserting their sovereignty, Nations, perhaps. Yes, absolutely. And de Gaulle's line was, if you don't have institutions that can in some way embody the aspirations and hopes of people, that connect to people, they are 
will collapse or there will be a problem. And in a way, what we're seeing in Europe today is partly vindicates that point. But what was his vision of Europe? He did want Europe, but he wanted essentially a Europe built around a core Franco-German axis. And what he wanted was I suppose, put it this way, he wanted a a Europe of nation states acting together and acting together as, and I'm afraid he wouldn't have said this, but this is what he was really thinking, as an extension of France. We are running out of time and we haven't even covered his wilderness years, Algeria, Algeria, his so-called (laughs) anti-Americanism, not to mention the student protests of 1968 to be continued. Julian Jackson, thanks so much for being on the program today. Thank you very much. That was Julian Jackson. He's Professor of History at Queen Mary, University of London, and author of A Certain Idea of France, The Life of Charles de Gaulle. It's published by Alan Lane. You're on RN. Well, that's all for this week's edition of Between the Lines. It's always great to have your company. Now, remember, if you missed anything, you can find all our interviews on the RN website. Just go to abc.net.au slash RN and follow the prompts to Between the Lines. This is Tom Switzer. Hope you can tune in again next week.